St. Peter's Church is located in a historic district in the Twin Cities neighborhood of Mendota Heights at the confluence of the Minnesota and Mississippi Rivers. Locally, it's called the Historic Church to distinguish it from the 1974 structure that stands nearby in the same parish complex. The Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport sits just across the Mississippi River, a comparatively modest stream way up here near its source. The story of St. Peter's, the cradle of Catholicism in Minnesota, reaches back to the early days of the state's settlement. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. Anuncio Opis, Gaudium Magnum, Abemus Papam. You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. Before I recount the story of St. Peter's, a special mention. I came across an article in August 2021 reporting on the efforts of George Pett, a parishioner in Minnetonka, Minnesota, who was on a quest to unearth the remains of the state's first Catholic chapel, the mission of St. Michael the Archangel located inside the long-lost French Fort Beauharnois on Lake Pepin. I was unable to find any updates since 2021, so I don't know if the search has been abandoned, but it was a cool idea anyway. Now, back to St. Peter's. Mendota Heights takes its name from the Dakota word for meeting of the waters. The Dakotas predominated in this region when the great recollect missionary of the North, Father Louis Hennepin, was among the first white men to enter what is now Dakota County in the 1680s. But European contact remained rare until 1803, when the future state of Minnesota became part of the U.S. through the Louisiana Purchase. The explorer and government representative Zebulon Pike negotiated with the indigenous peoples for land to build a fort. Around the same time, Jean-Baptiste Ferrabeau became the first permanent white settler in what is now Dakota County when he built a home on an island at the convergence of the rivers. Fort Snelling and Pike Island are both now historic sites located in the same district as St. Peter's Church. The early French settlers named the Southern River and their town after Saint-Pierre, St. Peter. In 1852, the Minnesota River and the town of Mendota would take their permanent names from the Indian language. In the 1820s, the American Fur Company, taking advantage of its strategic location, established a trading post at Mendota, and a few years later, Henry Sibley arrived as its chief agent. In 1837, the handful of Catholics at the settlement of St. Peter's became part of the newly erected Diocese of Dubuque, headed by Matthias Loris. The following year, Loris toured his native France, successfully recruiting seven seminarians for his sizable new diocese, including three who would have a role at St. Peter's, Lucien Gaultier, Auguste Ravou, and Joseph Creighton. Bishop Loris visited St. Peter's in 1839, finding 185 Catholics who, as he put it, manifested a great desire to assist at divine worship and to approach the sacraments of the church. In early 1840, the newly ordained Father Lucien Gaultier arrived from Dubuque and became St. Peter's first pastor. Gaultier stayed at the home of one of his parishioners, Scott Campbell, who was employed by the U.S. government at Fort Snelling as the interpreter between the military and the natives. Gaultier counted a total of 11 families in the parish, including the Campbells, 
plus a handful of single men who were soldiers or fur company employees. The Campbell home served as the site for mass until a log chapel could be built. That structure, located on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River, would later become the first cathedral of the Diocese of St. Paul. But more of the small congregation lived on the other side of the river, Mendota. So in 1842, the first Church of St. Peter was constructed there. The 20 by 40 feet log building served as both church and rectory. The simple cupboard-like altar from this original church is preserved at the Museum of St. Paul Seminary in St. Paul. Father Galtier's pastorship lasted only four years. Life in the northern wilderness was difficult, physically and emotionally. The priest found that the frontiersmen were frequently crude, recalcitrant, independent, and heedless of his admonitions. In 1844, with Galtier's health failing, St. Peter's first pastor was transferred to Keokuk, Iowa, and a year later returned to France. His friend, Augustin Ravu, was assigned to take his place at St. Peter's. Gaultier and Ravu had been ordained together in 1840. Ravu's American missionary adventure had started in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, then on to several stations in Minnesota. When he took up the post at Mendota, he had already written a catechism for the Dakotas, titled The Path to the House of God. He was, according to one account, a shrewd, somewhat cantankerous man whose strong convictions made him more than a match for his rough environment. According to a later historian and pastor of St. Peter's, Father John Bauer, at the outset of his pastorate, Ravu's parish encompassed around 300 Catholics scattered across Mendota, Fort Snelling, and St. Paul, the last a settlement established a few years earlier, five miles further north on the Mississippi. His 1846 Christmas Midnight Mass at St. Peter's was filled to overflowing, some attendees having driven several miles in their sleighs upon the frozen river. There were several good singers, Ravu noted, who sang hymns for an hour and a half before Mass. Loris's third clerical recruit from France, Joseph Creighton, became Loris's vicar general in Dubuque in 1839. In 1850, with settlement increasing in the Minnesota Territory, the Pope created the Diocese of St. Paul, and Creighton was named its first bishop. Like Loris, he began his episcopacy with a tour of France, seeking financial support and vocations. After being consecrated as a bishop there in January 1851, Creighton returned to the U.S. and took possession of his cathedral, the small log church of St. Paul. The new bishop would successively build two new cathedrals as he struggled to keep pace with the rapidly growing Catholic population of the region. By the time of his death in 1857, there were 29 churches and 50,000 Catholics in the Diocese of St. Paul. Creighton appointed Ravu as his vicar general, but the latter continued to pastor St. Peter's as well, and in 1853 organized the building of a new church. The hardy pioneers quarried stone from the riverbanks and split shingles for the roof. Monetary contributions came from Alexander Faribault, Henry Sibley, the officers and men of Fort Snelling, and Bishop Creighton. At a total cost of a little over $4,000, the historic church was raised and has stood ever since, exteriorly much the same as it was in 1853, with the exception of the bell tower. The original steeple was toppled in a storm in the 1880s, and in 1951 a tornado took out the bell tower that replaced it. The current tower was built in 1953. During his pastorate, Ravu clarified the boundaries of the property of St. Peter's by writing to Secretary of War Jefferson Davis. When Bishop Creighton needed the services of his vicar, he could summon him by flying a flag from the top floor of the three-story brick building in St. Paul that served the dual purpose of cathedral and episcopal residence. 
1853, Creighton inaugurated the construction of a new stone cathedral, which would serve the diocese until 1904, when Archbishop John Ireland built the current Cathedral of St. Paul. But Creighton would not live to see its completion. He died in 1857, and Ravoux took up the administration of the diocese until a new bishop could be named. A Dominican, Thomas Langdon Grace, became the second bishop of St. Paul in 1859. Two years after Bishop Grace arrived, his native town of Charleston, South Carolina, witnessed the rupture of the Union when the state's militia bombarded Fort Sumter and sparked the Civil War. In Minnesota, far from the hostilities between blue and gray, a different conflict would provoke perhaps the most memorable event of Father Ravoux's missionary life. The 1862 U.S.-Dakota War erupted when several bands of eastern Dakotas, driven to desperation by hunger and the threat of displacement, attacked and killed hundreds of white settlers in southwestern Minnesota. United States military and militia forces crushed the uprising five weeks later at the Battle of Wood Lake. More than 300 captured warriors were sentenced to death and imprisoned at Mankato, though President Abraham Lincoln commuted the sentences of all but 39 and one of these gained a last-minute reprieve, leaving the final number at 38. Ravoux's account of the episode appears in his memoirs published nearly 30 years later. It's contained in a long letter that he wrote to Bishop Grace just a few days after the execution. Ravoux arrived in Mankato on Friday, December 19th, presenting to the commanding officer a letter of recommendation from his old acquaintance, Henry Sibley, who had served as the first governor of the state of Minnesota from 1858 to 1860 and after whom is named the street on which St. Peter's Church is located. This introduction furnished Ravoux every facility for seeing and instructing the Indian prisoners. Among the prisoners were some of a mixed native and French blood who were baptized Catholics. He spoke to them, as he said, of God, of salvation, of the eternity, for which we should all prepare ourselves by prayer, repentance, and receiving the sacraments. The following Monday, Ravoux was present along with another Catholic priest and two Protestant ministers, when the condemned natives were given their death sentence. The convicts were given the opportunity to choose which spiritual advisor they wished to accompany them in their final hours. Twenty-four chose the black robes, and about a dozen selected the Protestants. Most of these Dakotas were not yet baptized, so Fathers Ravoux and Somerizen spent the several days instructing them in the faith. Ravoux outlined the catechetical program. The great God of heaven and earth, who manifests himself by the grand spectacle of nature to all. The mystery of God in three persons, the incarnation, the redemption of the world by the cross, death, judgment, heaven, hell, eternity, the glory of the just, the resurrection of the body at the end of time. It was a theological crash course designed for students whose attention was intensely focused on their final destination, and it was effective. I cannot express the joy I experienced, Ravu wrote seeing with what attention and respect the principles of our faith were received by the unfortunate Indians who were soon to bid an eternal adieu to this world. The priests also led the group in prayer, including the Our Father, prayers to Mary, the Apostles' Creed, and acts of faith, hope, and charity. Again, the prisoners' devotion edified their clerical guides. The piety with which they followed these exercises filled my heart with consolation, Ravu wrote. I can say without hesitation that divine grace overflowed their souls, for it alone could have wrought such a change. Ravu long remembered the emotional intensity of the few days leading up to the execution. More than once when I found myself alone, tears flowed abundantly from my eyes at the recollection of the fervor with which they invoked the Most Holy Trinity. 
He frequently exhorted his catechumens not to fear death, but to love God with all their heart and all their strength, and that they should soon be encompassed with immortal glory. On Christmas morning, Ravu distributed Holy Communion to three French Indian Catholics who had been baptized but not yet received their first communion. In Ravu's words, it was the first and last time they received the bread of angels. The first communicants were inexpressibly happy. At two o'clock that afternoon, he returned to the prison to give final instructions in preparation for baptism. With Father Somerizen, Father Ravu then conducted the ceremony of baptism for 30 Dakota neophytes. While one catechumen ended up refusing baptism, ten other natives who had initially chosen the Protestant group switched to the Catholic one before the end. Combined with the three already baptized, 33 of the 38 condemned men died as Catholics. The Almighty inspired me with the feelings of a father in their behalf, Ravu reported, for I love them all with a great love in our Lord Jesus Christ, and I would willingly, I do believe, have given my blood and life for the salvation of their souls. Ravu remained with the converts for the rest of the day, conversing with and encouraging them past midnight. I considered myself happy in being able to assist to prepare them for the great journey to eternity. He was impressed at the prisoner's display of peace and calm. Most of them slept soundly the last night of their life. On the morning of Friday, December 26th, after a brief repose, Ravu offered an early morning mass for the intention of the souls of those to be executed. I offered the precious victim of our altar for the condemned who were so dear to me, praying the Almighty that their death might be no more than a passage from this land of exile to eternal beatitude. During the time of the holy sacrifice my soul was deeply touched, and tears fell abundantly from my eyes at the thought that those for whom I prayed had only a few hours to live, and would soon be before the tribunal of the Sovereign Judge. He then spent some time with the Dakotas, praying with them as they prepared for the fatal hour. At last, at ten o'clock in the morning, they went to meet their death. Ravu's description is a fitting memorial. They mounted the scaffold without any sign of fear. They arranged themselves in the place assigned them. They met the stroke of death without a murmur of resistance, and braved all suffering, animated with great hope in the future. Thus it is that men, though only Christians of yesterday, can die. Four thousand spectators filled the streets of Mankato to witness the largest mass hanging in American history. Nearby, Ravu was on his knees, invoking from my very heart the mercy of God in their behalf. Ravu continued to work among both American settlers and natives during his remaining time in Mankato. In 1865, in the closing chapter of the Dakota War, he once again ministered to Dakotas condemned to death, this time the chief's Shakopee and medicine bottle, who had finally been captured across the Canadian border in Manitoba. The priest visited them in prison and instructed them in the faith. Before the end, he said, they believed in Jesus Christ and in all his doctrines. They forgave their enemies, were baptized, received Holy Communion, and died full of confidence in their Savior, who had shed his blood for their redemption. Shakopee and Medicine Bottle were hanged to death at Fort Snelling on November 11, 1865, their chaplain having accompanied them to the very steps of the gallows. Ravu spent the last 15 years of his life at St. Joseph Hospital in St. Paul under the care of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet. When he died on January 17, 1907, the collection of cabins that he had found upon his arrival in the 1840s had grown into a thriving city of 200,000 souls.
Meanwhile, St. Peter's Church had grown with the nearby city. Father Anatole Oster, a native of Strasbourg and Alsace, that's the disputed borderland between France and Germany, succeeded Ravoux as St. Peter's pastor in 1857 and served two stints, 1857-1859 and 1902-1908. From 1881-1883, the pastor was a Dominican, Constantine Egan, who had served as a chaplain during the Civil War, but whom I did not have time to work into my section on chaplains for episode 108. In 1869, the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet arrived to initiate Catholic education at the parish. They bought Henry Sibley's old homestead, which supplied space for both a convent and a school. The school was not spectacularly successful, and it closed ten years later, though in its brief lifespan it produced at least two distinguished alumni, the inaugural bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, Timothy Corbett, and the education reformer and Catholic University of America professor, Thomas Edward Shields. A parochial school was re-established in the 1950s by the Sisters of the Precious Blood. The new building was dedicated on the Feast of the Precious Blood, July 1, 1957, and a convent was added to the parish complex a few years later. Declining religious personnel and enrollment led to the second school's closure in 1972, but the school's premises were repurposed two years later when the parish decided to transform the building into a church that could better serve the contemporary congregation, which had outgrown the 1853 edifice. The former school became the Contemporary Church and the original structure became the Old Church, and later, the Historic Church. By that time, the Old Church well deserved the appellation. It had been designated a historic site by the U.S. Department of the Interior in 1935. It was the oldest church in continuous use in the state of Minnesota, and the only surviving church that predates Minnesota statehood, 1858. In 1975, while the congregation worshipped in the new building, extensive restoration and repairs were undertaken on the historic church. A guardianship board was formed with the purpose of protecting and preserving the historic church for all of us and for the future. For anyone who might be new to Catholic History Trek, a brief explanation. Scott and I customarily end our episodes with a common Catholic prayer, the Glory Be, prayed in the historic language of the Western Church, Latin which Father Augustine Ravoux, for example, would have used for his masses at St. Peter's Church in Mendota, back in the 19th century. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto, Sicut Era in Principio et Nunc et Semper et in Secula Seculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.